of grim predictions about the future of local news, both in the United States and in Canada. But my guests on today's program are feeling optimistic. For their new book, the pair did a deep dive into innovative local and regional news startups across America, and they say these startups are changing the media landscape one outlet at a time. Ellen Clegg spent more than three decades at the Boston Globe. She's the co-founder of the nonprofit local news outlet in Massachusetts, Brookline.News. Dan Kennedy is a journalism professor at Northeastern University and a media commentator. Their podcast is What Works, the Future of Local News. And together they are the authors of What Works in Community News, Media Startups, News Deserts, and the Future of the Fourth Estate. Dan, Ellen, welcome to Lean Out. Thank you. Thank you. Wonderful to have you on today to talk about your book, What Works in Community News, for our own series here on local news at Lean Out. I came away from reading your book so energized. Ellen, you spent more than three decades at the Boston Globe. Dan, you are a professor of journalism at Northeastern University and a media commentator. What made the two of you decide to embark on this particular project together? This is actually a pretty good story. Jude, you want me to tell it, Ellen? Please do. Okay. Well, Ellen and I had known each other for quite a while, and Ellen was starting to move toward retirement. So we said, would we like to do something together? Absolutely. But what are we going to do? And we actually spent some months thinking that we were going to write a textbook about opinion journalism <laughs> until we decided that that didn't sound like much fun. We wanted to do something that would be fun, but at the same time useful and make a real contribution. So we decided that we wanted to take a look at local and regional news organizations that were keeping their heads above water. Most of these are startups and holding them up as kind of an example to the local news crisis and saying, look, look at what these interesting things that people are doing. Perhaps you could do this in your community or your state as well. Dan has been researching this question much longer than I have. He has developed a list of independent startups all throughout Massachusetts, and I wanted to tag along. We abandoned the idea of doing a textbook on opinion journalism. We realized that's basically a tweet that opinion should rest on a strong foundation of fact. So we moved in, <laughs> we moved into this direction. I remember coming to Northeastern in, what, 2019? I think so. I think it was later than that, actually. It was after, maybe it was after, I think it was before the it pandemic. Was, it was after COVID. It was it, right after COVID. It was June of 2021, so or May. May. So I came over to Northeastern. I live in Brookline adjacent to Boston, and we mapped out the projects we wanted to look at on a whiteboard. That's right. And honestly, there are hundreds of these projects out there. I wouldn't say that what we picked, we picked at random. We definitely had an idea of going for geographic diversity, business model diversity, size diversity, and also audience diversity. So I think that readers will find we've got everything from rural America to urban communities of color in our book. 
Mm. And it is such an inspiring book. And especially for those that are making a go of it now independently, there's so many lessons here. But but before we get to the, the kind of bright spots here, just for context, for listeners who may not be familiar, can you sketch out for us just how dire is the situation for local news in America? And how did it come to be so? Well, Penelope Abernathy, who is kind of the gold standard for the big picture stuff on the local news crisis, she's now at Northwestern University, not to be confused with Northeastern, has documented that 2,900 newspapers have closed since 2005, and they are mostly weekly serving local communities. And she expects that that will continue. That's about a quarter of the total number of newspapers, and and she expects it to reach a third over the next few years. And there's a more or less proportionate number of newsroom folks whose jobs have been eliminated over that same period of time. So it's pretty bad. But what really animates Ellen and me is our belief that an awful lot of the trouble that has come about in recent years is not just Craigslist, not just Google and Facebook, but also the rise of corporate chains and hedge funds as newspaper owners, which are really squeezing out the last remaining revenues rather than reinvesting them both in coverage and in technology that might pave a way for the future. So we figured if we can get past the corporate and hedge fund owners of these papers and look at what independent people are doing, the picture might look quite different. And in fact, it does. Yes. And those trends also apply to Canada as well. Those are very big issues in our our media landscape. To set this up for listeners as well, I mean, what is at stake here? What happens to a community when it becomes a news desert? We did some research that finds that in the United States, in these communities with where a newspaper shuts down, there's what's called a corruption tax. There's no watchdog watching the local budget. There's no uh, nobody attending the town meeting where fiscal allocations are made. And so these economists did a paper a few years ago that found that the municipal bond rating goes down, making it more costly for a town to borrow money. That voting participation also goes down. There's more what we call in the state straight ticket voting, where voters have less information. There's there's no stories about candidates. There's no debates. There's very little information. So instead of voting for an individual, they'll just vote down the party line, Democrat or Republican. We also believe that the obsession with national political news in particular correlates with the decline of local news because it's not that people aren't interested in the news, but they're not getting much in the way of news and information about their communities. So they gorge on cable news and become very animated about what's happening in presidential politics. And we think that this is really bad for the country. And what we really need is a reinvigoration of civic engagement. But you can't really have that reinvigoration without reliable news at the local level. 
And I want to talk about some of these startups that are bright spots. I mean, one of the ones that many people are watching is the nonpartisan, nonprofit Texas Tribune, including many of your interview subjects. It has one of the largest state house bureaus in the country, and it provides all of its content free to print digital and broadcast outlets in Texas and to its national partner, The Washington Post. Talk to me a little bit about what you both learned about what's working in that example. Well, that's one of Ellen's projects. We wrote together, but we worked separately. So uh, (laughs) Ellen can tell you about the Texas Tribune. Yeah, I went to Texas, to Austin, and Tribune was in transition. It's really a pioneer in this space. It was founded in 2009. Austin in particular and Houston have legacy newspapers, but they were downsizing. So a legendary political journalist named Ross Ramsey partnered with Evan Smith, who was a renowned writer and editor at the Texas Monthly Magazine, and a venture capitalist. And they funded a nonprofit newsroom that in 2009 was very small. They focused mostly on statehouse news in Austin. Austin is the state capital of Texas. They built from there. I remember them talking about posting up a database of the traffic. There were these traffic cameras at intersections that recorded people who ran red lights and stop signs. And this was a public database that got a lot of interest, a lot of hits. They also started a political newsletter for insiders that they did charge money for, and they made a go of it. They are renowned for their events. The Texas Tribune Festival attracts many, many people nationwide. There are over a hundred different talks, and they coincide. They partnered with the famous South by Southwest event planners. And that's become a real hit for them. And I want to point out, too, because some of your listeners probably know that the Texas Tribune has had to do some downsizing over the last six months or so. And I've actually heard some people say that, well, that's proof that what the Texas Tribune isn't working. Well, you know, every organization has its ups and downs. There is absolutely no evidence that this is any more than a temporary blip. It's not good for the people who lost their jobs, but the Tribune remains one of the most important statewide news organizations in the country. And probably will be well into the future. I also wanted to ask you about the Tiny News Collective. I thought that was a really interesting case study. Walk us through what you learned from them. Well, we interviewed Kara Myberg-Guzman, who is the co-founder of Santa Cruz Local. And it's a tiny, tiny news organization. And she is very active in helping along the tiny news collective, because the situation that is out there for these startups is that they know how to do the journalism for the most part. A lot of the people who are doing these startups have been mainstream journalists, and now they're trying to figure out how to do these as entrepreneurs. And they really need help with the back office stuff, figuring out how to do a budget, how to have a content management system, advice on how to sell advertising. And the Tiny News Collective is essentially dedicated to 
providing some of these back office services in an off-the-shelf manner, but they're not a commercial entity. They're a nonprofit in and of themselves. There's another project we looked at in New Jersey called Tap Into, which is a for-profit that essentially allows people to start their own hyperlocal news site as a franchise model. And that's a good model for some people. But what is really cool about the Tiny News Collective is that they're really providing more of a service for news entrepreneurs who really want to strike out on their own and chart their own way forward. And the Tiny News Collective has also been very good about gearing their services toward women and people of color. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the issues your book grapples with, the number of your subjects are grappling with, which I think is really important to address, is just that as you point out, uh, you know, a lot of the communities that end up with these startups are communities with connections, with wealth, with funders, with active, you know, paying subscribers. And so they tend to get covered better than poorer communities. How do we think through that challenge? It's a big problem. It's a big problem. You know, one of the projects I looked at is the New Haven Independent, which is serving a community that has many people of color, is not particularly high income, and they have been thriving for 18 years. The Independent has been thriving for 17, 18 years at this point, thanks to some really key funders that believe that it's important. But without those key funders in other cities, they tend to go without the same kind of neighborhood coverage that the New Haven Independent is going to provide. So that's why you see projects such as Press Forward coming forth, which is a coalition of 22, I believe, foundations that are trying to raise $500 million over the next five years to seed local news projects all around the country. And they have made it clear that they're making urban communities, underserved communities, a priority of their funding. And we'll see what they do. I mean, hopefully that will be at least a partial solution to that to that problem. Yeah. And Memphis, which is a low wealth community. It's a big city, but I think the majority population is Black and female. Wendy Thomas, the founder of MLK50, who's very impressive. She has a background as an editor and an investigative journalist. She found that she needed to get funding from national players, from national foundations, because partly because there's not as much wealth in Memphis, but also because she was a Metro columnist for the commercial appeal, and she pissed a lot of people off <laughs> with, with her sharp investigative work. Well, and that points to another challenge that I wanted to raise with you. I think it was Thomas that was living off her credit card to get the business off the ground. Is that is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So she was not drawing a salary for the first part of her business. Another outlet that you spoke to relied on retiree volunteers, and yet another couple were collecting Social Security early. So how sustainable is a business if it can't pay its employees? And how do we think through that? Well, let me go back to the volunteer one for a moment, the Bedford Citizen. The reason we included them is that over time, they were able to move past the volunteer model. They brought a professional fundraiser on board and began raising money from membership, grants, advertising. 
And it reached the point where they now have a full-time professional paid editor and a half-time professional paid reporter and freelance fees. Now, it can be tough to get started in that regard and going without money for a few years, but they did make it and they have become a sustainable nonprofit. You know, some of the projects that we looked at started on a shoestring, as you say. Some of them started rather big. One of the projects I looked at was the Colorado Sun, which is a digital project started by 10 former Denver Post journalists who left in the face of repeated cuts by the hedge fund Alden Global Capital, who's the Post owner. And from the moment they started, they've been paying themselves competitive salaries. Nobody gets into our business to get rich, but people who went to work for the Colorado Sun get paid as much or more than they would for other local news organizations. So it's hard to generalize about this. Some of these projects are, in fact, started with little or no money, but others start rather large. And I think that one of the projects we could point to that is started by immediately paying a living salary is one that Ellen is involved in in her hometown of Brookline. Brookline.news. So Dan mentioned the revenue mix for a nonprofit. And to quote wiser people than I, nonprofit is a tax status. It's not a business plan. Even a nonprofit needs to be sustainable. So Dan's mentioned foundation money, individual donors. You can have advertising. It's just taxed differently. Corporate underwriting, sponsorship of newsletters, events, you name it. I think that all the projects we've looked at are considering or have considered some of these schemes to bring in revenue. And I live in Brookline, which is technically a town of 65,000 people. It's adjacent to Boston. It was served by the Brookline Tab, a weekly print paper published by Gannett for many, many years. And in 2022, Gannett Media shut down more than 20 papers in eastern Massachusetts, including the Tab. So a group of us started meeting on someone's back porch. We retired journalists, business people, a PR executive, and a software guy. And we were all concerned that there was absolutely no news, no local news in Brookline. Gannett publishes some website called Wicked Local, but Wicked Local pivoted to regional coverage. So the town meeting wasn't being covered, the town elections, the school committee. And we began, we incorporated with the state we applied for a fiscal sponsor, the Institute for Nonprofit News, and we began holding house parties, listening sessions, fundraisers in people's homes. I sat at a table outside Brookline Booksmith, and slowly but surely, we raised enough money to hire our first employee, our editor, Sam Mintz. He is a 2015 graduate of Brandeis University, and we're paying him a fair wage along with benefits, a stipend for healthcare and technology. And we have just posted two more jobs, a part-time reporter and a chief of staff to help on the business end. Other than that, we're all volunteer. 
but we're making a go of it. We've got a newsletter, a website. We don't have plans for a print paper at this point, but we are researching perhaps doing a guide to Brookline in print. And the editor of Brookline.news is being paid much more than Gannett was paying its editors back when it was uh, still running weekly newspapers in eastern Massachusetts. Yeah, we did a market survey, and this is what we came up with. And it's all pretty exciting. It is a lot of work. (laughs) 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 But I'm not going to lie. But it's a labor of love. It is so interesting to hear all of these stories of people who are making a go of it and and who are achieving quite a bit. I do want to touch on just two more things before I let you go. The first is the issue of public trust and declining public trust in the media. This is something we've covered on this podcast quite a lot and something I'm currently really trying to grapple with. And in your interview with Stephen Waldman, the president of Rebuild Local News, He said that some of the erosion of trust comes from this perception that we're all biased, that there's no line between journalism and opinion. And he said he wondered if it was worth the fight, if the harm done by having opinion is so great that it's not worth the benefit. What are your thoughts on that? I'm a huge Steve Waldman fan. I'm not sure I agree with him about that. And I also think the whole issue of media trust though it's a real issue that we're all grappling with, it's also widely misunderstood. The reason I say that is that when you ask people, do you trust the media? They're going to say no. If you ask me, I'd say, no, I don't trust the media. But then you ask them, well, okay, what media do you use on a daily basis? And, you know, they'll list three or four news outlets that they consult regularly. And then you ask them, well, do you trust those outlets? And they're probably going to say, yes, of course. Otherwise, why would I waste my time with them? I think the problem is we don't trust the media that we think our neighbors are paying attention (laughs) to. A liberal is going to say, well, I know my neighbors are gorging on, you know, Fox News and the Sean Hannity show and all of that. And that stuff is just complete garbage. And somebody who is a member of the political right would say the same thing about the New York Times and PR. Now, this is also part and parcel of a problem I mentioned earlier, where people are fully engaged with the national media because they've been kind of pushed away from local media because there's so little of it now. So this is a roundabout way of answering your question, Tara, and I'm sorry about that. But obviously, one of the things we believe and hope is that if we can bring people back to local media, that in and of itself will engender trust, not just in local media, but in local institutions as well. Do you see the same reporter covering a business opening at the school committee meeting, covering a street fair? You will walk up to that person, they're a real human being, and you'll read the story and you'll feel that you can give them feedback. People buttonhole me in my alley and give me story tips. It's local news. It's a high-touch business, and I would argue that does more to engender trust than another MSNBC or Fox news hit. That led me to sort of my next point, which is about ideological diversity. And reading the book, I was really struck by how much ideological diversity was present there. Do you think it's just easier to achieve that in a local landscape? I think the sort of definition of ideology is different on a local level. You know, it's less about 
in Brookline about who's a Trump supporter or who's a Biden supporter or who's a third party supporter than it is about the tax base, about level of English teaching in the high school, about test scores, about snow plowing <laughs> and about what's showing at the Coolidge Corner Theater. Yeah. And, you know, I have to say most of the projects we looked at are nonprofit and by their very nature, they are forbidden to engage in certain types of editorial activity or they lose their tax exempt status. They can't endorse candidates for political office, for instance. They can't endorse specific pieces of legislation. Now, the people we talk to, whether for-profit or non-profit, to a person, with the sole exception of Art Cullen at the uh, Storm Lake Times pilot, said they don't want to do that anyway. Probably the place where we heard the most amount of opinion being expressed was on WNA. H in New Haven, <laughs> yeah. where the wonderful morning host, uh, Babs Rawls Ivy, is basically an old-fashioned liberal who does not mind uh, letting her views be known. And she shares the mic with the uh, station manager, Harry Droz, who is a Donald Trump supporter. And, you know, honestly, it sounds crazy, but they make it work. And I think that they are showing, even on a local level, how national politics can be a force that we can discuss civilly and as human beings and as friends rather than letting us completely divide us. And on that note, I just want to read a quote from your book, which really stood out to me. This is from Sewell Chan, Texas Tribune. He says the entire organization is resolutely pro-democracy. And, quote, that means we favor pluralism and diversity of views and perspectives, recognizing that we live in complex times. We are not here to support any party, sect, or faction. We are not trying to change Texas. We would like, however, to improve the functioning of democracy in Texas. And we do that by shining the light of accountability and by holding power to account. What a wonderful quote there. I want to just end by asking about your optimism. You said after all of this research that you came away from it very optimistic, and I share your optimism. Just to close today, what is the basis of that optimism? What do you see in the future for local news? I'm going to get to optimism. <laughs> I think things may get worse before they get better, because I think that the problems with corporate and hedge fund ownership are going to result in the continued closure and hollowing out of local news organizations over the next few years. But I have been following this space for the past 15 years, and it's almost like one of those algorithmic curves where you see a slow build in the launch of these local news organizations. And just in the past few years, there has been an explosion of them. And I don't really see any sign that that's going to slow down. So in that regard, I'm very optimistic. And let me just add a little bit of an aside that some of your listeners might immediately think of. Well, is there really enough nonprofit money out there to support all of these nonprofit startups? My answer to that would be, I think that there is, as long as we understand that it's the local philanthropic community that has to understand in 
cities and towns and counties across the country, that local news needs to be supported just as much as youth programs, the local symphony, and all of that. Because it it's true, there isn't enough national philanthropic money. But if we can take care of business at home, then I think there's a lot of reason to be optimistic. I'm optimistic because I think this proliferation of startups shows that journalists have learned to experiment and innovate. And, you know, you innovate, you try something. If it doesn't work, you try something different. You iterate, as people in tech would say. And I think that's a rather novel, a new spirit in the industry. And I'm excited about it. Well, I just want to thank you both for the book and for your podcast. I think it's exactly the kind of deep research that we need right now. And uh, thank you for the conversation today. Thank you, Tara. Thank you. Lean Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you value independent journalism, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. You can also support our work by reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts.